Welcome to Champagne Problems. We are your hosts, Robbie Shaw and Patrick Balsley. Thank you for joining us on this journey as we explore our mental health, well-being, performance, and longevity, and how our relationships with alcohol can influence each. No shame, no labeling, no judgment, just curiosity. Welcome back, all of you sweet souls. Today, we're speaking with Jerry Schwab. Jerry is the president and CEO of the historical High Watch Recovery Center in Kent, Connecticut, and is chairman and founder of the highly successful Global Exchange Conference that brings together leaders from around the world looking to elevate their knowledge regarding the latest mental health, addiction, and wellness innovations. Patrick and I attended the Global Exchange Conference last year, and it was mind-blowing how brilliant of an experience it was, and... We got to watch him interview Rob Lowe and Whoopi Goldberg. Jerry's kind of a celebrity for us. Let's talk to Jerry. Jerry Schwab, welcome to Champagne Problems. Thank you for having me. <laughs> you got it, man. The pleasure's all ours. We are, uh, we're honored you made time for us, and we're excited to learn more about all you've got going on. We know a little bit just because we we follow you, but uh, we're we're excited to to hear from you. We uh, we typically start with some rapid fire questions, somewhat playful, but some we of just, them are weird as shit. <laughs> some of them are and, a little. little and Robbie odd. <laughs> created them, so don't judge me. What was your first live music concert, and where? Oh, this is embarrassing. Ooh, better. New Kids on the Block. Was Yes. No way. Yep. No way. How did you know? (laughs) Knew it. (laughs) That was very good. Um, We're about the same. What what are you? How how old are you? Uh, forty three. Yeah, yeah. I'm forty one. That was that was not mine. Was Hootie and the Blowfish, but it it was right around that. New kids on the block. My sister was into New Kids on the Block at the time, um, big time, and uh, my uh, grandparents decided that they were going to take her um and took me with them and i'll never forget my my uh it's kind of my step-grandmother but she was thrilled with herself she got me this long almost nightgown length pink t-shirt with multicolored little uh drawings on it with round mirrors you got any pictures <laughs> put them up on the high watch website that was burned long ago with my intake yeah. that's hilarious pink that? nightgown length. still traumatized by it understandably all right next question who is the most famous person that you have a relationship with that you're comfortable sharing russell brand and i are pretty friendly yeah yeah i know we've seen that that's a good one cool jeez he's uh he's a a good friend of ours and uh solid dude yeah very cool one of the smartest people i've ever met in person people don't know that if someone were to warn us about you what might they say uh he's a lot he's a lot intense a lot perfect all right this is the easiest this is an easy one um (laughs) if you could know and i'd say that every time we fucking ask it uh (laughs) if you could know the answer to anything or any question what would you ask what happens after you die yeah yeah standard yeah standard all right this is robbie's favorite question (laughs) i have nothing to do with this Jerry Schwab, what's your favorite smell? What's my favorite smell? The lobby at the Beach Club Resort at Disney World. Yes. I thought you were going to say this pen. This, yeah. this, this, this. That is Scratch great. Scratch and sniff marker right here. Big pen. Are my, Fresh are big. 
favorite smell. Lobby. I love it. Yeah. I love it. Because, you know, Patrick makes fun of that question. I, I think it's a nostalgia thing. I, when I think mm-hmm. of my favorite smell, it's, uh, I got it. I know, I know it. I was just thinking about it, dude. It's probably weed. I like the smell. Weed. I really yeah. like the smell of weed. I you still like, do. Yeah. Dirty socks. Um, okay, let's dive in. Jerry, what was early life like for you? I, I understand that there's some some lead up to, um, you know, you said. I mean, I have a couch behind me. I could lay down and we can yeah. really, we could really get, I mean, how much, we have what, four hours? Mm-hmm. No, more like, where did you grow up? Where'd you go to school? Grew up in uh, Connecticut my whole life. Um went to school in Connecticut. So I'm a Connecticut born and raised person still live here. Um, I live in Woodbury, Connecticut now, which is about 20 minutes from the town I grew up in. Gotcha. What town did you grow up in? Oxford, Connecticut. Okay. Good deal. What led you to working in the field of addiction? Um, I drank a lot and used a lot of drugs uh, initially, uh, which got me into uh, into treatment. Um, in 2010, I came to high watch. I'm an alumni. Nice. Uh, after that, I went back to my, uh, regular career, which I worked in the ambulance industry. Um, we did, uh, ran a couple of nonprofit ambulance companies, uh, did a medical billing company at a security company, um, didn't intend to work on work in behavioral health at all. And then fast forward a bit to 2016. Um, I always had a relationship with high watch because, uh, being an alumni here and some of my friends uh, stayed on and worked here. Uh, I came in to help them with some project stuff because they were going through some transitional changes and some, some pivotal points in the, in the organization's uh, history they were approaching. And uh, I ended up, you know, working here, being offered a job and working here as a vice president. And then, uh, then about a year later as the CEO. Uh, So, but I didn't intend to kind of happened accidentally. Pretty cool, man. Give us a backstory on High Watch. So High Watch is the world's oldest uh, 12-step based treatment program. It was uh, founded by the founders of Alcoholics Anonymous. So the big book, uh, the AA text, was published in the spring of 1939. High Watch was founded in the fall of 1939. So um, by a woman by the name of Marty Mann, if you're not familiar with her, she was one of the yeah. first women to maintain long-term sobriety in AA, uh, was a sponsee of Bill Wilson's. Um she started going to Bill and Lois's house in the summer of 1939. Um, she was in a psychiatric institute in Greenwich, Connecticut, and they would bring her to his house uh, for a meeting once a week. Uh, he became her sponsor. Um, she had a sponsee ultimately a couple months later, a woman by the name of Nona Wyman, who was uh, used to come to this place in northwestern Connecticut uh, called High Watch Farms. And back then it was a spiritual retreat. So High Watch is... Uh, 84 years old as a rehab and over 100 years old as a spiritual uh, retreat center where people would go um, suffering from anything, really Um, homelessness, mental illness, you know, addiction, um, spiritual bankruptcy, as Sister Francis used to say. Um, But Sister Francis was a was a woman, uh, very interesting woman. She was the daughter of a Massachusetts uh, businessman, kind of a socialite back then, a hippie of the early 1900s. And um, she had some means and um, she was a follower of a woman by the name of Emma Curtis Hopkins, which was Christian mysticism. Um, And she wanted to buy a place uh, and have it so where people could come that needed help, help from anything. Um, So back in the uh, 1920s, she bought three farms, uh, one that I'm currently at and one up and down the road here a bit. 
Um, one was a, a place for uh, women and children uh, to go, unwed uh, unwed women that they could go and and um, be able to to be treated with dignity and respect. Uh, and the other farm was uh, an elderly uh, farm where people could go and live out their their days in a spiritual spiritual place. And then this farm that I'm at back then, she called the come and go farm, which was kind of where people would kind of come and go that were suffering from, you know, any anything where they needed spiritual healing from. So it tended to attract a lot of alcoholics back then, 1920s, 1930s. <laughs> it, it was of the time when um, if people had tuberculosis and if you brought people up to like the Adirondacks and they breathe in the mountain air, it would cure them. So this property got a reputation back then for, um, you know, if you can't stop drinking and you go up to... Um, to this place in Kent, Connecticut, the grant, you know, your, your obsession to drink will be miraculously lifted. So, hmm. um, that's what happened. So it attracted a lot of alcoholics, Bill and L Bill Wilson and, um, Marty Mann and those folks had heard about it from Nona. Uh, they came up here in the fall of 1939, um, on a weekend, long weekend in October, they met sister Francis who owned the place. Uh, sister Francis fell in love with AA and then attempted to gift it to the alcoholic foundation, which is what it was called prior to it being AA. Um, Bill following the traditions didn't accept it. Um, and said, you know, his exact quote was, um, uh, we, AA can't own property, but, um, we'll use it if you let us. So, um, a bunch of the AA founders went on the high watch board. Um, Bill was not one of them at first, he years later when they had some problems, um, alcoholics fighting go figure <laughs> um and uh they would use it as a place to bring people up to dry out if you ever heard the the term drunk farm we were the creators of drunk farm so it was high watch from you'd bring them up um here they'd bring them up for a weekend they'd bring them up for a week they'd bring them up for two weeks um they'd live on the farm they'd participate they'd be part of a community um and they'd work the steps you know so uh, it evolved over the years. Uh, we got shut down in the 1980s because we were operating without a license because regulation came in. So we got closed for like a year, um, opened back up and, and everything was 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 fine uh, from then on out. But uh, it's we modernized over the year. We've built, uh, you know, in the last six, seven years, a robust clinical program that's kind of been um, blended well with AA. Um, we still have the the same, you know, AA based program that we've always had. We've just added on a significant, you know, medical and clinical component to it. We have a detox now. We have, you know, outpatient services, sober living, you know, all the, the different things that a modern day treatment center would have. Um, but we are still rooted in our fundamental principles of, uh, of Alcoholics Anonymous. I actually have uh, one of my best friends that I consider a brother is uh, in your care right now. <laughs> He's been there for a couple months and, uh, He's 41. He's probably been to 25 different treatment programs. Um, started to try to get sober at 19, 20 years old. And I've had about three conversations with him since he's been there. And he is absolutely blown away with what you guys are doing there and, uh, and the care he's getting. Um, and I had another family friend of mine that admitted there yesterday. So, um, uh, and it, it's crazy because, like, I didn't, um, I didn't even know how watch existed until global exchange last year. Um, and I've been in the field, been working in the field for about 10 years. And I felt like I was somewhat, um, in the know of different treatment programs around the country. And for some reason, like I knew of Alina lodge. Um, and I just, I don't know if it's just because of the location, but I, um, 
I've I've come to know High Watch over the last couple of years, or really since the last year, since Global Exchange, and I just keep hearing so much good stuff about it, and, um, and about the history and the clinical programming and leadership, obviously. Um, and I, I appreciate what you guys are doing up there, man. Um, it seems like a really special place. I'd love to have you guys up for a tour. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, when I took over seven or so years ago, the board had a motto that High Watch was a program of attraction, not promotion. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> the income statement had some red numbers at the bottom. <laughs> I can imagine. Uh, we've turned that around. But, um, you know, you can't operate a company in 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 the uh, in the traditions, you know, it's a. Uh, but I appreciate the kind words. And yeah, uh, man. it's true. I came through here myself. Uh, so I think that's what makes it special. Um, also, the we're a nonprofit. The board of directors has to be 51% of people, active members of Alcoholics Anonymous with a sponsor working on a program like it's in the bylaws. Um, oh, chairman cool. of the board, chairman of the board has to be uh, in recovery and the CEO has to be in recovery. Wow. I saw, I was reading a little history on it and I did see something about, you know, Bill Wilson, Bill Wilson's initial response when he, when he stepped onto the property and how it, you know, the, the vibe was thick kind of thing is, is that. He leans over to Marty. He said, my God, Marty, you could cut it with a knife. Yeah, that's it. Right. Is that, you feel that there? That's very cool. And you know, it doesn't, for me, it doesn't wear off. You know, uh, I bring my kids here uh, on the weekends. We, there's a big alumni Saturday night dinner, um, you know, and I wouldn't have any of the things that are that I would, you know, I wouldn't be alive probably for sure. Um, but I definitely wouldn't have the good things in my life um, and the life that I have today if it wasn't for this place. Mm. How, bi- how big is the program? Like how many uh, residential patients do you have at a time? Uh, so we run full most of the time. Um, we have a bunch of different levels of care on the main campus. We have actually have an operating farm across the street, which is, uh, um, the hope program, which, uh, so 78 residential 12 detox. So there's 90 like official licensed bed in the main campus. Then we have, um, you know, about 15 PHP beds where people come to the campus for day treatment and then they go off to the houses and then about 25, um, IOP beds and sober living. So it's all on the, we have three members here, so it's all on our property here, um, but the people are in different levels of care. So, you know, at any given time, there's, you know, 130 nice. or so 140 people in our care. Wow. Wow. All right. Um, we also took over Alina Lodge in New Jersey, January. Yeah, I heard. Yeah. So that's been good. That's actually how my how my buddy got over there. He was an Alina Lodge alum and uh, went back to check a friend in, and um, ran into Bill. What's his, is his name? Bill, the old the CEO. Yeah, yeah. Ran into Bill, and Bill was like, well, "What are you gonna do?" And uh, he was like, "I don't know. I'm gonna figure it out." And he's like, "No, you're not. You're gonna get a high watch." And uh, and took him over to you guys. Let's talk global exchange. How did the uh, the inception? Or tell us about the inception and how in the hell did you pull that thing off so well? <laughs> we, I mean, just FYI, uh, we mean, went and just, we absolutely just were mind blown. I mean, I couldn't believe, like, I mean, when I first saw it and I was like, all right, he's bringing all these, all these A-listers, this thing's going to be cool. But then when I got there and I saw how well it was put together logistically. I mean, from the... Seamless. From the, it, yeah, Seamless. I mean, I, and, and it being the first 
year of existence and just ever i mean it was it was like it was perfect where did the idea come from like you know give us the whole rundown like i want to take some time on this man because i think everybody needs to experience global exchange i mean even people that aren't in our field um to to learn about the stuff that that that's going on there like give us the whole rundown man you remember in the beginning when you said what would people warn me us about yeah, yeah. yeah. This, yeah. Is this is it. All right, well, let her, let her rip, Jer. <laughs> yeah, like, uh, no, I mean, you know, I can tend to be intense and I'm a details person and, uh, you know, I like to know all the details um, of, you know, how things are going to work and stuff. And um, I skate the line between involved and micromanaging, <laughs> uh, yeah. you know, but um, I'm a huge Disney person uh love disney um you know grew up as a kid uh in a you know a home where we were not afforded the opportunity to go to disney uh we didn't have that kind of money um like many of us a bit of a traumatic childhood so i escaped a lot through disney movies um and i always thought to myself when i was a kid like oh you know if i could ever go i you know i want to go and then when i was old enough to go i went you know so um i started going as much as i could um love disney um my wife likes it, doesn't necessarily love it as much. <laughs> I mean, I have like Disney tattoos. That's how much I love it. Um, and uh, brought, you know, we brought the family and the kids and, you know, it's been a wonderful experience for our family. And I was walking around Epcot one day uh, and I was uh, with um, one of the kids was, if you guys have kids, I was doing the sleeping dad routine where one of them is sleeping and just my wife was off with the other kids. Um, and I was just kind of walking through Epcot. If you know Epcot, it's, it's a bunch of countries in a circle. Yep. It, it was the uh, food and wine festival, which even has even more countries that pop up. And I was just thinking to myself, man, it's it's amazing in how uh, like how if you look at, um, you know, mental health and behavioral health in all these different countries, how it's like vastly different. You know, um, the U.S. is like way ahead of many countries on many things. You know, this, you know, mental health and addiction treatment being one of them. Um, and we're way behind on other things, but we won't get into that. Um, mm-hmm. but you know, I was just, you know, some of the countries that you'd walk through, it's not even discussed, you know, and then, you know, I was just kind of walking around thinking, you know, I'd been to cool places, Sam Quinlan, who was, uh, the, she owned, um, ICAD in London. It was a conference. I don't know if you remember that, that yeah, yeah, yeah. here in London, um, you know, COVID, uh, to my benefit, unfortunately killed her business. Um, because everything shut down and, you know, there wasn't a lot you could do about that. So I, Sam and I had a relationship from ICAD. So I thought, man, if we could take something similar to what she had done with ICAD and really kind of blow it up bigger, um, you know, it would be great. And it would be so cool to do it here where all these different places are represented. So I had this great idea that we were going to do this giant, you know, total alcoholic ego filled conference and, (laughs) you know, in the middle of Epcot, Disney was going to be okay with it. You know what I mean? Like, oh, Disney's going to love it. Like, you know, so then I call Sam up and I said, Sam, you got to meet me in Disney World. She's like, had never been. And so Sam meets me in Disney World and I walk around Epcot and I share with her my idea. I said, you know, I really think we should talk to Disney and we should do, you know, this mental health addiction and wellness conference. I said, you know, these are all things that like people, you know, because you look at like addiction treatment today, right? It's almost like a novelty, like, oh, we now have a psychiatrist, you know? So like when you blend in the addiction, the mental health and the wellness components, 
Um, you know, oh, we have yoga, but like, no, it's never been like meshed that like all these things should, should be together and kind of treat the whole person and, you know, mm-hmm. as benefits. So, you know, those are where the, the kind of pillars came in. And then we added leadership because, um, you know, I firmly believe that there's a real, um, there's a real leadership void in our space. Yep. Um, you know, I think a lot of people like to go to a lot of conferences and talk about a lot of stuff that they have absolutely no idea what they're talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and myself being one of them, you know, I've only been in this field for seven years. I'm not going on some speaker circuit, you know, um, yeah. you go talk to Gary Fisher who like actually knows stuff, you know, like, <laughs> um, but anyway, so Sam loved the idea. We contacted Disney. Um, you know, they didn't hang up on us when we said we wanted to do it in Epcot, uh, but they did laugh a little bit. Um, so, you know, we were kind of learn the rules of things that you could do events in these spaces, but you couldn't take over the park. Um, and, uh, you know, as we, as we kind of evolved, you know, we did it during COVID. We took some, you know, risks at the time because, um, you know, we knew COVID would eventually blow over or we hoped it would. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we really wanted to focus on like individual people, like, you know, what's, what, what could we provide to the space that would be useful and helpful? Um, and, you know, it's the clinicians, like my care, yep. you know, in treatment outside of treatment is only good as the person that I'm sitting there and talking to. And, mm-hmm. you know, that evolved into, um, you know, really putting a message together that we wanted to um, have people in the industry feel that we were taking care of them for those few days, that um, that we were going to encourage them to begin the idea of thinking differently of, you know, just because I've always done it this way doesn't mean it's a good idea. Well, I well, I took the sign down because people got offended, but I used to have a sign in my office that just because we've always done it this way doesn't mean it's not incredibly fucking stupid. Um, <laughs> but, you know, you, you can't you can't have that in your office. I'm going to put one in my office. Right. That's a right. great sign. <laughs> it fooled you, though, because it looked like an inspirational quote. <laughs> right. Oh, it's like, oh, what did that say? <laughs> incredibly fucking stupid. Love it. And we didn't want to like copy anything anybody did, right? Because uh, I came from a different space, you know, a number of years back where we had much more um, evolved conferences that were just in industries that were there for much longer. So kind of my first conference that I went to, it's retired, so I can say it is Moments of Change in Florida. Oh, yeah. I remember that. I got sober in Delray. (laughs) This shit was ridiculous. Shocker. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I remember pulling in and I see all these like Ferraris and like Lamborghinis and stuff out front. I'm like, fuck, people better hope the payers don't show up. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like, yeah, really? It was, you know, and I go to get to the water cool. I'll never forget the sign said thirsty for calls. I'm like, this is just. Oh, wow. God. <laughs> and, you know, in the space I'd have, um, you know, listen, in some of these conferences, anybody could be a, an expert speaker. Just pay twenty thousand dollars. Yep. Right. You know? Put um, your logo on the brochure. And where, you know, when Sam and I talked, um, you know, we weren't gonna do things like that. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, you know, we have situations like take Dr. Flowers, for example. Dr. Flowers is an expert in his own right, you know. So Dr. Flowers is speaking at the conference and he happens to be a sponsor. The two aren't connected. You know, we've yeah. had mm-hmm. a lot of people that come to us and say, Oh, 
you know, I'll give you a sponsorship, but we really want our clinical director to be a to be a speaker. So it doesn't work that way, you know. Um, so we wanted people that were going to be speaking at our conference, um, you know, to be experts in their own right. Um, and you know, we wanted a diverse uh, a diverse offering of ideas. You know, my yeah. job was not to be the idea police. You know, Sam's job was not to be the idea police. Um, Lizzie, Lizzie, who uh, works with us now, you know, there's, listen, we offer some programs and stuff where like Jerry, as my, my personal belief system kind of rolls his eyes a little bit, you know, um, but that's not my job, you know what I mean? So, um, so we wanted to build a program where, you know, we encourage the caregivers, the clinicians, the, the boots on the ground um, in these spaces, whether it be a treatment center, a private practice, a hospital, a school system, um, you know, uh, to be able to come there, challenge themselves to think differently. Because, I mean, look, what we're doing is not working. You know, mental health yeah. um, and, you know, addiction is through the roof, overdoses, suicides, I mean, depression, anxiety, you know, oh, yeah. this idea that we're going to take a pill to fix everything in the world, you know, is broken, you know, so we want to be able to offer something where we're going to challenge the clinicians and the people to think differently, to do things differently, to try new things, and quite frankly, to lean into their own work. When I feel a different way about myself that like, I don't want to do something like get curious, like, why am I feeling that way? Why don't mm. I want to do that? You know, why am I uncomfortable? The problem is a lot of people, as soon as they feel uncomfortable, they're out, you know, like I'm not, you yeah. know, I'm not going to do this. Yeah. So you guys are doing a self-care workshop too, the first day. Yeah. So we did, a, we have a pre-workshop that's coming. Um, it's going to be, um, uh, Tian Dayton, uh, yeah. Dick Schwartz, Judy Crane. Uh, they're going to be doing kind of their own little special thing, presentations in the morning. And then, um, on sites come in with, uh, some group facilitators and everybody's going to do process groups in the afternoon. And it's, it is just them doing their own work. You know, yep. this, is, uh, you're going to learn some stuff, but, um, you know, Judy Crane says a great thing and she can say it because she's a clinician and I'm not, but, you know, she'll challenge clinicians. She'll say, how dare we ask, you know, a patient of ours to do something that you're not willing to do. Nope. Um, you know, so, you know, Judy's a big advocate of, uh, of, you know, doing her own work. You know, I've, I've done lots of workshops with Judy and, um, it's, uh, it's been great, but, you know, more importantly with this, so we wanted to build this environment where um, people felt taken care of, people were challenged to, you know, do things differently, learn new things, have exposure to experts that they wouldn't otherwise be, have exposure to in, you know, rural Ohio, you know, and try to um, market to to places weren't necessarily marketed for. Our, our team went around to all 50 states. We got 46 of them. Um, the, um, all the licensed professionals within those states, we went and got the lists ourselves. So we went to the health departments and the counties and all that stuff. So we put together a massive marketing list to be able to, um, you know, share our ideas and what we're doing with this program, you know, across the country. And then we branched out into different places in the world where we have relationships, um, and, you know, are still growing those relationships to be able to pull in more international speakers and have more of an international presence. But, you know, ultimately the goal is, uh, you know, this year, uh, is looking even better than last year from a program and from a financial perspective, you know, we invested a lot of money last year, um, yeah. this year, hopefully break even, you know, the goal is for year three to be able to, to post a bit of a, a profit here, but 
we're never going to profit. We're a nonprofit. Um, and the goal is to just be able to provide scholarships um, for the conference to, um, you know, socioeconomic areas that otherwise wouldn't be able to have access to these presenters. Like, you know, if you've got, you know, a good amount of money, you can go see these experts. But if you're, you know, working in a Medicaid program in the middle of Pennsylvania, you know, they're probably not going to, you know, pay your thousand dollar registration to, to go to this thing. So, um, the big, the big goal for us, uh, going into potentially this year, depending on what the numbers look like the next month or two, and then definitely going into next year as we grow is to be able to provide, uh, educational opportunities for underprivileged underserved areas that otherwise wouldn't have access to this type of education. Yeah, that would be awesome. What's your vision look like in terms of numbers? Like, you know, year five, do you want 20,000 people showing up for Global Exchange? Like, yeah, I mean, I'm an alcoholic. So yeah. you know, the bigger, go is better, bigger right? go home. Yeah. yeah. Hell yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> bigger, bigger is better. Um, so we had uh, 2,500 or so registered um, last year. We're about 22% as of today ahead of where we were, you know, oh, on yeah. pace. Good. You monitor it week by week. So yeah. um, if that paces, we'll have a little over 3,000, um, awesome. you know, so, you know, we'd ultimately like to grow it to 10,000 um, is, is, is our goal. Nice. Wow. You know, it, it, it just what stands out in my mind is is the innovation aspect and 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 so many things you just said in that that ex description where you know as a society as a as a country and even you know globally we're just we're struggling mentally we're struggling with addiction we're struggling with all these things and it's not it doesn't seem to be getting better in fact it seems to be getting worse but what i love about the conference is that it does incorporate the wellness aspect to it and that was what caught my eye like plenty of conferences out there are mental health addiction but when you throw wellness in there then you got the whole system and when we've talked we talked to many people about the the whole going upstream strategy and 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 i feel like you know we we can attack the symptoms all day long but we've got to go for the cause and we got to figure out what is what is what is creating all this all this this increase in, in the mental health suffering that we're, we're experiencing. And so your conference, I mean, incorporating the whole system and in, including all of this innovation and people from all around thinking outside of the box and cutting edge, it's just freaking awesome. So nice yeah. work, brother. Yeah. And, you know, I'll never forget when I was in treatment, uh, there was a guy that was the director of nursing here at the time, this, this fellow by the name of Ray, and he was in recovery. He was a nurse. Um, and I was here like day three and I go down to nursing and I said, listen, I like, I can't, I'm going to jump out of my own skin. Like I, I, I'm just so anxious. I can't stand it. And he's like, um, well, have you ever tried, um, like deep breathing exercises? I'm like this freaking quack. <laughs> You know, like, <laughs> give me some more methadone, bro. Yeah, like I just, I need a pill. Like I yeah. don't need you to talk me to me about breath work. And he says, listen, like, I'm not going to give you clonidine or visceral. Like, I'm not going to give you anything right now. I want you to, and he gives me headphones and the CD. It was back when the, the you know, it was like CD mm -hmm. players with the, what were those, uh, whatever the hell they were called. Disc man. Um, disc man. Yeah. He gives me a disc man and he says, I want you to go back to your, uh, your dorm and i want you to do this cd and i don't know what the hell came over me man but i just listened to him you know what i mean i was like all right i'm gonna go back to my dorm and do this bullshit um i go back and i listen to it it changed everything for me mm. like just in and it wasn't like that thing because my anxiety persisted and i had post-acute withdrawal symptoms but like it got better but it was it was the willingness to list to say to take a suggestion 
And then I felt better from it, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And that's simple stuff. Like we forget that, like with the clinicians and the staff at like the centers and the private practice and like, you know, like we can get stuck in our own routines of how doing things, you know, like, um, like right now, psychedelics are the new cure for everything, right? You take Mm -hmm. some psychedelics, you're going to cure all your trauma and that's going to be the end of it. Listen, I think ketamine and psychedelics and stuff like definitely have a place for certain people. Like I'm sure it's extremely helpful, but like, there's nothing out there, nothing right now. That's the fix for everyone. You know, AA might work great for some people. It might not work well for others. Smart recovery might be great. Group therapy, you know, ketamine infusions, microdosing, like whatever it is. So, you know, we want to be able to offer a palette of like, here's everything that we can, that we can offer, you know? And, you know, people learn differently. You know, I'm the type of person where like in school, if I had a good teacher and I heard somebody, you know, the professor talk about things in school, like I remembered it, lead me to read a book. I'm not, I'm not the guy. Um, I think people heal that way. You know, I see people here that some people, you know, do the best in art therapy. Some people do best in psychodrama. Some people love IFS and parts work, Um, you know, and some people don't want any of that and just need the fellowship of AA, you know, uh, where all of a sudden, like, that's the shift for them. So, like, we want to be able to offer as many things as we can to people without judgment, without this isn't going to work. I mean, and there's so many experts in the ask any of these experts, <laughs> like their way is the way that's oh, going to yeah. fix all of it, you know, um, and Bessel, uh, if you guys are familiar oh, with yeah. Bessel. Yeah. This is one of the reasons I love Bessel because, you know, one of the things when I first met him, um, uh, he said to me, Jer, people, clinicians, practitioners need to like stop having religion for certain modalities. You know, like his belief is the same thing. Like, you know, like uh, he he's big into neurofeedback, um, you know neurofeedback isn't for everybody, you know? So he's going to be at the conference this year. You know, he's a big advocate and he pisses off some of his colleagues because he says like, none of you have all of it for everyone, mm-hmm. you know, like, um, so, you know, that was one of the reasons that, that we've brought in this diverse people, you know, cause I've had people call me up and say, what the hell is this person doing on psychedelics? It's like, I'm not the gatekeeper. Yeah. Yeah. Bring them all. Let's, let's figure it out together. You can have three sips of a glass of wine and put it down. Like, I don't know. She's not a healthy person. Maybe some mushrooms would do her some good. I have no idea. You know, what stands out is, is the story you told about yourself. It's where you decided that I'm just going to do what they're, they're suggesting. And so that's kind of the key. It's, you know, we're constantly looking for the external what's right for me. And that's not, and this is, and maybe that is, it's an inside job, you know, without getting too Mimi, it's an inside job. You got to be ready. We got to have autonomy family member calls up and they're yelling this is the 24th time they've been to treatment what's going to be different i don't know yeah you know we can't well, you know, we've been writing, we'll see <laughs> we've been writing prescriptions for willingness for years you know yeah. right. whether or not somebody wants to fill it yeah but the, but like you said man the more the more stuff we got on the table the higher the probability is that something's going to take motivate that inside job you know? right and i we've had people that you know, that had been to, you know, 20 treatment centers and all of a sudden they get with like Danny, our art therapist, and there's yep, a shit. Click. No. Yeah. Um, now that's not everybody. I mean, that's not my thing. But for me, you get Tion Dayton in front of me doing psychodrama 
and she'll yeah, get. She's freaking protected. awesome. Hmm. Where do you see the field going, man? I mean, I, I you, we kind of, you kind of, we kind of talked about what we think it needs, but like, where do you? I mean, you got hope for us as as a collective in terms of mental health and addiction and and overall wellness, like. What do you think needs to shift within our field to to really make a an impact on the the suffering of our society and our culture right now? Where where do you think the biggest you know opportunity lies? This this particular field, listen, I listen to people at these conferences that are experts and talk about stuff and they talk about it's never been so bad, the field's awful, it's a cesspool, like it's like it's not been my experience. Yeah, like me neither. I I have met the most loving, interesting, caring, mission-driven people in my entire life, you know, like, and it's because a lot of shared experiences, right? You'll have an academic, um, you know, expert who might say, you know, oh, well, they're not qualified because they're not a clinician or, you know, you wouldn't, you wouldn't go view, you wouldn't go ask your cancer doctor you know, if they were a cancer survivor and, you know, or go ask a cancer survivor, what dose of um, radiation you should be taking. Like, this is a unique disease. This mm-hmm. is a unique field. This is a unique suffering. This isn't, you know, a hip replacement or a, you know, a, a measurable, you know, medical condition, you know, behavioral health is much more unique. So in this particular field, in this particular space, I think it attracts folks who've got shared experiences. Um, I think, you know, many studies and statistics show that whether it be a 12 step program or group therapy, you know, that the the fellowship and the the sharing of shared experiences has a tremendous, tremendously positive therapeutic impact on people. So, you know, when you get to the field as a whole, like I think the field is like is much more is in much better shape than the regular healthcare system. You know, you go to hospitals nowadays, Yep. you know, they're, they're in complete shambles. The Brett, you know, the receptionist at the desk is burnout. They don't want to talk to, um, you know, that's not been my experience when I walk into treatment centers across the country. That's not been my experience when I talk to clinicians around the country or, um, you know, mental health specialists. Like, you know, I find these people to be the best people in the world. Um, the people that, that are in this for the right reasons. I think, you know, I think the field probably needs to be cleaned up a bit from, you know, a marketing perspective, but that's everywhere. You know how many unethical care centers are around the country? Nobody wants to talk about that, you know, or orthopedics who own radiology centers. Like they're just an MD. It's acceptable. You know what I mean? Like that's not to say, you know, but that's not the majority of this country. The majority of the country is, you know, ethical, good people who, I mean, who are doing things for the right reasons that want to help people that, you know, are going to try the best that they can with what they have, you know, and uh, I'm, I'm, I feel lucky to be in my position. I feel lucky to have met and work with the people that I've met and worked with. Um, And, you know, I'm incredibly hopeful for the field. It's a very progressive, uh, willing group of people. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's that's that the I don't know the, the all you hear about is the negative shit. That's the problem. And and like you said, there's so much positive. There's there are a lot of lives being saved out there, and we hear about the ones that aren't. Yeah. People say, "Oh, treatment doesn't work." Yeah, bullshit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right, right. It worked for me. Uh, yeah. I see it working here every day. You know, yep. yeah. um, 
you know, unfortunately, we tend to focus on the the bad outcomes. Um, and, you know, we call, you know, insurance companies call them negative outcomes and stuff. It's like, we feel it here different. Like, when we lose somebody here, like, they were part of our family. You know what I mean? Like, they were, you know, for as long as I'm not traveling, you know, I know every single person on campus, who the clinician is, you know, like, we 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 take this you know very 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 seriously um and you know treatment does work uh is it going to work right now i don't know you know yeah let's give it a shot i know that talks to you in your own voice right one of the things that i'm kind of obsessed with and always have been is like the engagement issue and you know we all i mean we know that 10 percent of the people that have a diagnosable substance use disorder are going to get help and 90 percent aren't or haven't statistically over the course of time where do you think we need to go or how do you think we need to start talking about this and i think you talked about it and you've done a great job with it at global exchange in terms of adding that wellness component and looking at things a little bit more holistically to try to pull that 90 percent in um really engage with that population and make it easier for people to ask for help when they need it. Where do you think we need to go in regards to that? So I think a lot of time we take a backseat kind of uh, like a teaching as like relationship to things rather than an engagement, uh, yep. act, you know, as, as you kind of said, you know, for example, um, it's only mm-hmm. taken me, you know, 12 years or 11 years for this, but like, if you ask, any holistically leaning somewhat physician or psychiatrist, what's the best thing somebody could do who's got an anxiety disorder, sleep disruptions, exercise. Yeah. You know, so fine, sit in a, sit in a room, you know, we'll put a PowerPoint up that says like, well, you know, we've decreased (laughs) by 37%. um, If you, if you exercise, I didn't want to exercise. I'll show you some pictures. Like I didn't want to exercise for years, you know, but now I'm to the point where like, I took a suggestion, I started doing it like, and now if I don't, if I don't exercise, I can, you know, cause I'm in my body, I'm not numbed by anything. I could feel the difference. So the reason I say this is because like somebody took the time to get a little more interactive with me, um, and have discussions. Um, and I think from a society's perspective, you know, we need to design systems from being, you know, schools and up that promote healthy things, you know, like, I mean, Michelle Obama took a crack at it. You'll even look at the food my kids get in public school. I guess, I mean, poison. it's It's not not food, good, you know? Um, And, you know, I'm in my body now and pay attention to things. And just recently in the last few years, to be honest with you, like, when I eat some sugar, I pay attention to how I feel. I don't feel good. You yeah. know, I like it, but like, I don't feel good. So, you know, I think from a much younger, younger age, we need to start with like better nutrition, um, better communication skills, you know, um, you know, I grew up in a house and in, in a community where, you know, boys don't cry, you know, all the stereotypical, yep. you know, stuff that's just like, that's just not healthy. So, you know, I think it starts way, you know, to back to what um, you had said before about, you know, we got to stop it from happening in the first place. You know, yeah. um, you know, I go back, I had a, you know, you need to um, share my story with you here, but, you know, I grew up in a traumatic household, right? 
Um, and, uh, I had some bad stuff happen to me as a kid. And when, as a professional now, when I look back and you look at my grades in school, you look at my behaviors in school, you look at the friends I hung out with, you look at the, the, you know, substance use that came up, all the signs were there. Mm. All the signs were there for somebody to pull me aside and say, what happened? What's going on? You know? So, you know, from a public school perspective of getting, you know, more like really trained mental health people in, listen, I love social workers, social workers, you know, help save my life from a therapy perspective, but ask a social worker how much training they get in school when it comes to like mental illness disorders or um, addiction. It's, it's not a lot. So, you know, to try to get, some of these people more diversified trainings and get the right people into the right places in, you know, public school systems, police departments with deferral programs so that we're not taking all these people and locking them up in jail. I mean, if I had the freaking correction department's budget, like, you know, to treat mental health and addiction, you know, and, but the good news is we're going in the right direction. Yeah, we These are. are happening in States. Like, you know, I'm not How? lamenting that like, Oh, nobody's listening. Like people are listening. You know, there's, there's funding coming through for things. There's States that are doing innovative stuff that we kind of have to see how they go. And, you know, people will copy them. Like things, things are moving in the right direction. Um, but, you know, having said that it's still not enough. I mean, you know, the cure for the opioid epidemic is going to be MAT, right? Put everybody on medication assisted treatment and that's going to cure it all. Well, never in the history of the world has more prescriptions been written for MAT and never in the history of the world have there been more overdoses. Um, Mm. So, you know, I'm not a scientist, but like, if you look at like what we're doing to correct the problem, it's not even curved it. So Back to what you said before, which is the real problem, is we're not addressing the root cause of mental health and addiction. Listen, MAT saves people's lives. It gives people an opportunity to be around longer, to be able to, but we're still not addressing the issue. You know, bit of a Band-Aid. Yeah. What happened to you as a kid? Because that's that's the root cause of most of this. Like, what happened that that we ended up here? Nobody ever asked me that until I was here. We got to figure out what that is and then figure out how to put systems in place to stop that shit from happening. And it's not just a, you know, there's going to be a little of this people here in treatment all the time that for the first time ever, they're going to share with their clinician. You want to know what, you know, I was sexually abused as a kid and then they don't want to talk about it anymore. You know, so the, the door was open. And maybe they come back a year or two later and they finish the conversation, you know, but um, we need to provide people spaces to be able to process and to be able to heal from those things. Yeah. Yeah. Man. Well, we could do this for hours, but in the spirit of time, let's uh, let's do a little shift because I have this just one question that I, that I typically ask a lot of our guests, but I would love to ask you, and it's more of a societal kind of thing because we're our podcast is very heavily or traditionally or in the beginning has been heavily in the alcohol space, but we look at it through a wellness lens. So we tend to talk a lot about alcohol because of its just public normalcy and, 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 you know, it being such a heavy part of our culture, but there is a shift. There is a shift. There's a huge alcohol free world opening up and this trend is occurring. Um, and I, and I just got I, back just, from burning man last week. 
Yes. Oh, yeah. I'm glad that you escaped. Yeah. And I, I was following his, your, your I journey on Facebook. Sober camp. Total, yeah. you know, substance-free sober camp with That's cool. other people. It was awesome. Glad you made it out alive. Yeah. Um, but so it's kind of a two-part question because I do want to incorporate marijuana in in this in this question because it's becoming so legal and eventually it is. I mean, it is going to be legal and and we know working in this field how how dangerous it is and can be. Meanwhile, the alcohol trend is going in this direction. The marijuana trend is going in this direction. What are we doing? What, one of our friends said we're just switching seats on the Titanic. <laughs> I mean, is that kind of how do you think about that? So whether it's alcohol or marijuana or, you know, benzos or opiates, whatever it is, you know, they're all, it's all the same thing. You're right. just escaping, you know, yeah. you're just numbing out from whatever it is that's going on. You know, having said that, there's plenty of people in this world. I'm not one of them that drink responsibly. There's yeah. plenty of people in this world that can use marijuana responsibly. I am also not one of them. Um, yeah. So I don't like getting caught up in, you know, the whether it's legal, whether it's not legal, whether it's good, whether it's bad. Um, you know, people ask, I'm sure you guys all the time, like, hey, do you think so and so is an alcoholic or do you think I have a pop problem? Like, I can't answer that question. Like, nope. you know, um, you know, it depends upon the motives of somebody. He's lying in the front yard right now. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I tell people the same thing. The fact that you're asking me this question, you should get curious about why you asked me the question. Um, but the sad part is, um, listen, man, life's great. You know, like I got three beautiful kids. I got a wife that I love. I've got a job that like, I can't believe they pay me to come here. Um, and how sad it would be if I was numbed out for it and couldn't remember things and, you know, was, was checking out from it. Um, but I think society has never been more numbed than it is right now with substances. Um, mm -hmm. And listen, uh, I'll quote her again. You know, Judy Crane said to me seven years ago when I first met her and she was talking about herself and she said, you know, we're the lucky ones because we got an escape from drugs and alcohol that prevented us from killing ourselves. Yep. Um, and that was, and then that hit home with me, you know, that was it, you know, so, you know, substances might have a place for some people uh, from a recreational perspective. It might have a place for some people from a coping perspective, but you know, at the end of the day, you know, I want everybody to be happy, joyous and free. Right. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, I think that we need to create spaces and have conversations with people that allow them to, uh, you know, explore things like that. You know, I think that, um, yeah, I've always been comfortable talking about my recovery in my situation. Not everybody still is. You know, I know some people that like can't share it at work because of the profession that they're in and they're going to be judged differently. Mm -hmm. um, but everybody talks about how drunk they got on Friday night. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, so, you know, I'm not sure if I really answered your question, but, you know, I think um, I think that, listen, marijuana is not going away. I think I think they should uh, in the same some of the same psychiatric experts from a couple of years ago that I personally know said, oh, yeah, we should legalize it. It's good for, you know, um, you know, anxiety disorders and 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 whatnot, um, which might have a place for some people with things like that are now saying to me, like, I've never had so many people coming to me with psychosis, you know, yeah. Um, it's it's not the same pot that I smoked 10 or 15 years no. ago. No, or, well, not from 10, it. 15 years ago. Um, 
you know, it's super, super potent. We have people that come into treatment all the time where they're early twenties, they've, you know, they've been using, they have, you know, cannabis use disorder. Um, they predominantly using that. And then, you know, we take them off of it and we monitor them for a few days, just kind of cringing, like waiting for them to pop. And a lot of times, you know, they enter, uh, you know, into a, a, you know, psychotic phase that they don't necessarily come back from. Now, the question becomes, uh, was it the chicken or the egg? You know, were they treating, Mm -hmm. you know, were they were they self-medicating an undiagnosed um, psychiatric disorder? Or did it take somebody who was maybe predisposed a bit for, um, you know, schizophrenia and then flipped a switch that can't be unflipped? Yep. Um, and there's a lot of, you know, psychiatrists that I know that work with that say the latter that said, yeah, you know, scary as shit. This high potency THC is, you know, is, is, you know, taking people who otherwise might not have been, you know, schizophrenic and, you know, push them into a category uh, that they're not coming back from. Yeah. Well, and I mean, back in our day, the, you know, ripping too big of a bong hit was the, was, was when you freaked out for a little bit. Now you can eat, you know, accidentally eat a hundred milligrams, milligrams of a gummy or, yeah. and then you're, 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 you're gone. I think you're going to die. Yeah. Oh God. It's a little scary. You want to ask the Yeah, man. So power? Get, yeah. Give us the, give us the three, uh, three biggest benefits for you for like removing substances from your life. The three biggest benefits for removing substances in my life. Um, three out of the hundred. Yeah. Three. Out of <laughs> uh, so, you know, it improved, uh, my relationship with myself. Uh, it forced me to, um, to be present in myself. You know, it, it gave me a, it kind of forced me into an exploration of like actually exploring my emotions and my feelings and, you know, why I feel that way. Um, it's, uh, gave me my family, you know, I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't have every time I talk about my kids, I get, you know, I, I wouldn't it. have my kids, you know, yeah. I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't have my kids. Mm. I can remember everything. Yeah. I didn't remember right? I mean, it was like pre 2010 things are, things are fuzzy. <laughs> awesome, man. That I can feel it. Yeah, me too, man. That feels good, Jerry. Uh, all right. Final question. Jerry Schwab, why do you care so much? I don't really give a shit. <laughs> Best one yet. We're going to edit everything else out after that. Just so you know. Because somebody gave a shit about me. Yeah. You know? Uh, and, you know, after I was, you know, healthy enough, uh, you know, enough years later, you know, I wanted to be able to, to be able to help somebody else. All right. Hell yeah, man. Thanks for uh, spending the time with us today. And thanks for everything you're doing, man. Yeah. Um, Thank you so much, man. We love you. Take care. The information and opinions shared on this podcast are solely those of the host and guests and are not a substitute for medical advice. If you feel like you may need professional help, here are some resources. Visit Patrick Balsley's practice, saunacounseling.com. Robbie Shaw's practice, eventiderecovery.com, or visit theblanchardinstitute.com.